You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Jawbreaker, Scurvy Legs, Kruger, MD, Big Beard, Schmarls, Logan, Cannon Monkey, The Knight of Dampier, Pablo, Nikki, Toves, Gin Soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. I told you last time we were going to talk about the events in New England in 1688, Bachelor's Delight and King William's War, the New England privateers cooking up new plots. But as I parsed through that story, I realized it makes much more sense to wait. That story is important, but... Before we get there, we need to turn our eyes to the south, to events taking place in and around Tortuga, and Petit Guave, and Saint-Domingue in general, that involve the last great generation of French and Dutch buccaneers. Now, I'm going to be asking a lot of you today. There are a number of stories we've talked about in the past that are all coming together right here. I'm going to be referencing all of them, which makes today both a terrible place to pick up the show, but also an excellent place, because all of those threads are going to begin to coalesce today. I want to pick up today, again, at the tail end of the Second Pacific Adventure, this time, though, with the French fleet that was led originally by Francois Groenet. By the 1st of January, 1688, Groenet was dead and his fleet had been split into two factions. The French marched under Mathurin de Moray. The English, at that point, were under George Dew. And I say they marched because, by the 1st of January, 1688, the pirates had abandoned their ships and landed on the coast of Honduras to begin their march overland to return to the North Sea. You may recall that story through the eyes of Ravno de Lusanne. If so, you probably remember the animosity between the two sides, the English and the French. For example, Lusanne makes special note of Pierre de Picard, perhaps the same Picard that sailed under Henry Morgan, but on this voyage he marched with the English, not the French. 
But beyond just pure animosity, they were playing politics as well. All of these pirates were heading home, and there were rumors that England and France might soon be at war. It, it looked bad to march home under the banner of the enemy. But everyone in Port Royal or Petit Guave could understand and even forgive a tense alliance against the hated Spanish. Now that march is the story that I compared to an old western. Recall the pitched battle at an old Spanish church and the beautiful mestizo women carried off by our black hat-wearing, mustache-twirling villains. After the running cavalry battle through the mountains of Central America, the pirates finally escaped and built what they called piperies. Those are those standing rafts that they built and rowed downriver. I want to remind you here of the English pirates that were found dead along the river, later discovered to have been killed by French buccaneers. Buccaneers who killed them, stole their treasure, and ran away into the wilderness. To say that that raised tensions between the two factions is an understatement. But eventually, these two separate groups, who were very nearly at blows with one another, reached Cabo Gracias a Dios, at the very northern tip of the Mosquito Coast. Now that's the home of the largest settlement of Mosquito people anywhere in the world. It's also the spot that Francois Lolonet lost his life, where he was ritualistically eaten by the Mosquito that he had spent several weeks abusing and torturing. That was the last substantial interaction that any French pirates had with the Mosquito people, so these French pirates were a bit tense. But the presence of the English likely tempered whatever animosity may have been present toward them. Now, Luson was understandably nervous, but he grew even more so when the English pirates spotted a merchantman out of Port Royal and flagged her down. Luson writes, quote, The English met with an English boat from Jamaica, whom they were very forward to press to go and ask leave of the governor of that island for their safe coming thither, because they had gone without any commission. That vessel was unwilling to go thither without they laid down six thousand pounds sterling by way of advance. They, the pirates, being not in a condition to run the hazard of such a sum, because many had lost their money by the oversetting of their piperies, stayed with the Mosquito Indians, who are very kind to them. End quote. So the pirates all just kind of settled down to wait. The English were living among the Mosquito, and the French were living alone just down the coast. There was a tense moment here when a party of Mosquito men arrived at the French camp, but there were some Englishmen that followed them shortly. Lusanne says they, quote, politically thought to send us word. See, there was another ship nearby. The Mosquito had spotted her, and the English were happy to lead the French to it and sail away, but the French had to agree to take the English with them to Saint-Domingue. The captain of that ship offered to drop all of the pirates, or even just the English, at Jamaica, but Lusanne says, quote, We, not knowing how matters stood between France and England, whether it were peace or war, engaged him to carry us to Santo Domingo for forty pieces of eight ahead. End quote. And it's here, with their arrival at Saint-Domingue, that Ravno de Luzon's story comes to an end. 
And that's a real shame. Because when they arrived at Sandaming, big things started to happen. Decisions were being made that were going to shape the world of the pirates for years to come. If one were inclined to give events such as this, about which very little is actually known, if one were inclined to give them big, dramatic, hyperbolic names, one might choose to call an event like this the Last Council of the Brethren of the Coast. Of course, to use such a hyperbolic name, one would have to be kind of a fool. This is episode 181, The Last Council of the Brethren of the Coast. As this is the swan song of the Tortuga Buccaneers, I think it's fitting to take a moment to remember the island's pirate history. This will also let us put the relevant players in place for the events of the Last Council of the Brethren of the Coast. The French colony on Hispaniola was founded by Huguenot Bucanyi around about 1625. From their base on the island of Tortuga, they hunted a boar, but by 1650 or so, they had graduated to hunting Spanish shipping. It was in 1665 that King Louis XIV finally officially recognized the colony and exerted some oversight. The governor that he installed there, Bertrand de Algrand, was little more than a buccaneer himself. He was fully in support of the Brethren of the Coast, a coalition of buccaneers from Tortuga and Port Royal, led most famously by Henry Morgan. As the Franco-Dutch war loomed on the horizon, de Augrand founded a new capital at Petit Guave, on the northern coast of that long peninsula in southwest Hispaniola. It was de Augrand's nephew, though, his successor, Jacques Nepvu, that prosecuted the war. He did so by Lettres de Marquet, Letters of Mark, and he empowered an entirely new generation of Brethren of the Coast to do so. The leader of this generation of Brethren was Michel de Gramont, the King of the Buccaneers of the 1670s, and Gramont was French. But his protégés, men like Michael André Zun and Laro de Graaf, Jan Willems, and Jacob Evertsen, they were all Dutch. However, most of their lieutenants and quartermasters were French. People like Pierre Le Pen, Jean Fantin, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse, and Jean Charpin. Now, I know that I'm throwing a lot of names at you, names that you likely have forgotten by this point, but they're going to come into play today. There was also, though, the odd Englishman in this ragtag group of pirates, people like Thomas Paine. Now, in the latter years of the Franco-Dutch War, and the years immediately following the war, this cabal of privateers was at the top of their game. They, they could attack the Spanish anywhere, on land or at sea, and do so nearly with impunity. But then, in 1683, the English Declaration Against Piracy was promulgated. Most of the English pirates in the West Indies sailed south for the Second Pacific Adventure, and a lion's share of the Frenchmen went with them. That's Mathurin de Marais and Francois Groenet. But there were those, like Lauro de Graff, that settled down and planted sugar. This shift away from a privateering-based economy toward an economy based on agriculture and slavery, well, that was the real tipping point for Saint-Domingue. That's when the island's character began to change. 
The few pirates who stuck around at Sandaming who didn't sail south but also weren't of a mind to settle down and buy slaves and start growing sugar, well, they found Tortuga, even, less and less welcoming. So those pirates left Sandaming behind. They roved the seas, which gives rise to that piratical reign of terror that lasted from 1683 to about 1685. It was during that period that pirates like Jan Willems and Thomas Paine and Jean Fantin and Jacob Everts and that whole group, that's when they would descend on ships and cities and devour their plunder like locusts. But that state of affairs could not last. The hammer was going to come down. The, the sword of Damocles was hanging over their heads, and it became clear that they had nowhere left to hide in the West Indies. So most of them fled. Several went to Africa, but some of them, like Thomas Paine and Jan Willems, they headed north, for Newport, Rhode Island, in their case. Remember, Thomas Paine built that famous windmill. But this exodus gave the West Indies a couple of years of relative quiet. And then 1688 arrived. In January, just after those Pacific adventurers had landed on the mainland, the Duke of Albemarle, serving as governor of Jamaica, received word, quote, the pirates, Yankee and Jacobs, Jan Willems and Jacob Evertson, have fallen upon a great Spanish ship in the Bay of Honduras called the Hulk, or the Urca. If Yankee failed in this attempt, he is ruined, for it is said that he was very ill-provided before. End quote. Jan Willems was ill-provided before. It was a lean couple of years, but that raid was a success. And it's going to prove to become a major turning point in today's story. But it was also the last adventure of either Jan Willems or Jacob Evertson. They were both killed in action during the fight. But after the death of those two captains, their fleet split up. Now, we don't know the details here, but boy, do I wish we did. See, there was a schism between two factions in that fleet, and it appears to have been mostly a schism along national lines. And each side chose their own respective leader, lieutenants of Jan Willems and Jacob Evertsen. The English chose George Peterson, and the French, Jean Fantin. Now this split may have been peaceful, amicable even, or maybe not. What we do know is that George Peterson if there was any fighting, appears to have won, because he took their ship north to New England. You may remember this story. He sold off a ton of plunder in Boston, a suspicious amount of plunder, so much that the Sally Rose and her captain, Thomas Pound, was sent to chase him off. But the other half of that fleet we haven't discussed very much, the French half, led by Jean Fantin. They were marooned, after the battle to take the Urca, on an island called Roatan, off the north coast of Honduras. And I know that sounds pretty terrible. There was probably some fighting, right? I mean, who maroons their crewmen? But there may have been a deal struck here. Now, that crew was small, but there were a few British pirates, seven or eight of them, that chose not to sail with George Peterson. One of those pirates 
may or may not be one of the most famous pirates of all time. This episode may or may not exist mostly to introduce one of these most famous pirates of all time. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. But before that, if you'll forgive me just a bit of speculation here, there's a series of events that could have happened. The timeline makes sense, and it does explain some questions to me at least. But it's a, it's a story we don't have any evidence for. If you were an English pirate sailing away from Roatan Island, there are only two directions you can go. You could sail north, but that would take you directly into the Spanish-Cuban waters. Or you could sail east along the coast of Honduras, which would take you right by Cabo Gracias a Dios. That's where the modern borders of Honduras and Nicaragua meet, and it's where the Mosquito Coast begins. George Peterson, an English pirate, would almost certainly have stopped off there. He would have wanted to collect wood and water and probably food, and as an Englishman, he knew the Mosquito people. Now, this is the sort of routine thing that was happening all the time in the West Indies. But this, shortly after the sack of that Urca, was in late January 1688, which is naturally exactly the moment when all of those pirates from the Second Pacific Adventure were at Cabo Gracias a Dios, living among the Mosquito and looking for a ride to Santo Domingo. Now, Ravno de Luzon, in his chronicle, never mentions George Peterson by name, but it's possible he may not even have known who George Peterson was. Now, I'm not saying it was George Peterson. History is rarely, if ever, that friendly to a storyteller. But it does kind of make sense, doesn't it? He was in the region at the time. And who else do you imagine would stop off at the Mosquito Coast at a settlement of Mosquito Indians and offered to give a bunch of rambunctious, filthy pirates fresh out of the Pacific Ocean a ride home. 
some god-fearing merchant trader on his way back to Port Royal, a good king's man would stop and give a bunch of French buccaneers a ride to Santo Domingo? No. A smuggler, maybe, but another pirate seems the most likely, and George Peterson was there at the time. So keep that in mind. Because it would, if it did happen to be the case, it would explain one of the most confusing elements of today's story. Regardless of who the captain happened to be, it was early February when the pirates from the Second Pacific Adventure arrived off the coast of Hispaniola. They anchored at Cow Island, the Ilavaque, one of the favorite clandestine meeting spots of the Brethren of the Coast. The fleet sent a group to Petit Guave to announce their return to the West Indies, to those in the right circles at least, but also to learn what they could about the political situation. And this sets the gears for the last council of the Brethren of the Coast to turning. So what actually happened at the last council of the Brethren of the Coast? Well, by this point, Lauro de Graff was a respectable citizen. He had a plantation up at the recently founded Cap Francais. And then word arrived that a bunch of his old friends and comrades had arrived at Il Lavache, so de Graff sailed south to meet with them. The governor, at this point Pierre-Paul de Cousset, was going to show up as well, but not yet. He gave Lauro de Graff enough time to put everything in its right place, to make sure that these pirates didn't look too much like pirates, to ensure, that is, that they would not be immediately arrested and subsequently executed. De Graff organized everything. He sent a bunch of pirates off on a mission, first of all, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the rest he folded into his little privateer army, something that the governor, with a war on the horizon, certainly could not have objected to. All of this, the council in general, reminds me of like a high school kid who threw a real rager of a party while his parents were away for the weekend, and then... Sunday evening, was desperately trying to clean up all of the liquor bottles and that spot where the bong water spilled before his parents get home. But while this is going on, while the Graf is trying to put everything in place, before the parents, Governor de Cusay, get home, I want to look at the actions of one single pirate. A pirate who has been with us since almost the very beginning. Pierre Le Picard. David F. Marley writes in Pirates of the Americas, quote, Picard and his flibustier were leery of any official retaliation for their actions, peace having long since been declared. Therefore, they feigned ignorance of this state of affairs. Governor de Cusay was not present, being on an inspection tour of Sondoming's northern districts, so there were no immediate repercussions. Although it soon became obvious that Crown policy had changed drastically with regard to roving. Picard and many other freebooters therefore elected to disperse farther afield. End quote. Picard would settle down eventually in French Acadia, up in modern Canada. But first he made a brief stop at Newport, Rhode Island. And this visit matches up almost perfectly with George Peterson's arrival at Newport, Rhode Island. 
If one were working off the assumption that it was, in fact, George Peterson who picked those pirates up at Cabo Gracias a Dios, it's possible, even likely, that it was George Peterson that gave Pierre Le Picard a ride up to Rhode Island. Now, no one thought much about Picard's arrival at the time, but a couple of weeks later, when some of Peterson's men were arrested for fencing all of that plunder, everyone started to look really hard at old Pierre Le Picard. He was followed, maybe even picked up and questioned. But nothing came of it. He was behaving himself and didn't have a suspicious amount of treasure on him. But I do want to mention another man who was in Newport at the time. Not yet a pirate, not even a sailor, as far as we know. Thomas, too, owned a small farm just outside of Newport, Rhode Island. He had a wife and two children in Newport in 1688. And in fact, it's that little tidbit that gives us our first reputable record we have of Thomas II. We don't even know where II was born, maybe England or maybe America. There are those who believe Bermuda is the most likely possibility. There are, of course, rumors and legends about all of it, but nothing's concrete here. Now, it's not Thomas II that is the one of the most famous pirates of all time toward which we are working today. He just happened to be in Rhode Island at the time that George Peterson and Pierre Le Picard met up with Thomas Paine. If he had any contact with the pirates at all, which is possible, but we don't know, but if he did, it's likely no more than him having bought them some drinks and listened to their stories at the local tavern. But with that, we can finally say goodbye to one of the original Brethren of the Coast and wish Pierre Le Picard a long and restful retirement. But when we turn our eyes back to the West Indies and the last council of the Brethren of the Coast, we finally have some hard documents from which to work. Thanks to Pierre-Paul de Cousset, the governor, who was about to arrive at the council. That story begins three or four months earlier, in late 1687, when Lauro de Graff was attacked by a Spanish frigate for, you know, the piracy. Now, that frigate, the Santa Rosa, which would be rechristened the San Rose when Lauro de Graff inevitably captured her, should not be confused with the Santa Rosa captured originally by Edward Davis in the Pacific. The pirates left that ship off the Pacific coast of Honduras before they went ashore. This Santa Rosa, though, the capture of this frigate, caused a minor scandal in Saint-Domingue. Spain and France were, as we said, at peace, and de Graff was actually forced to go before the governor and a colonial council to defend himself. In the end, though, La Roe de Graff was permitted to keep the Saint-Rose, largely because, well, it was a good ship and war was looming. When La Roe de Graff sailed for Ilavache after the arrival of the Pacific adventurers, he took the San Rose with him. See, it was a, a big, new, well-armed frigate, but there just weren't enough pirates in Saint-Domingue to properly crew her. Until, that is, the second Pacific adventurers returned. All of a sudden, there were hundreds of experienced pirates who would know just what to do with a frigate like that. But then Governor de Cusay arrived at this council. The parents had come home. But de Cusay was kind of a 
you know, a cool, understanding kind of dad. He looked at DeGroff with an expression that said, Look, I know what you've been up to, but play your cards right and assure me that you didn't get up to anything too crazy and I won't mention it to your mom. Mostly, he was concerned that the Son Rose, that big, bright, shiny, well-armed new frigate, was nowhere in sight. That's the cool dad looking at DeGraff and saying, Look, I got up some pretty crazy stuff when I was your age, but just tell me you didn't give that ship to some dirty pirate, right? DeGraff, though, did play his cards right. He explained that he'd given command of the frigate over to one of his top men, Jean Charpin, who was an honorable privateer, someone that had not sailed down to the Pacific with all of those dirty pirates, and a privateer that the governor knew quite well. And where exactly was Jean Charpin and this bright, shiny, well-armed frigate? Well, de Graff explained that he had sent them on a very important and timely mission to pick up some very important men. But the crew of Saint Rose sent on this very important mission was almost entirely made up of filthy pirates from the Second Pacific Adventure. Now this is that difficult-to-explain moment I mentioned earlier. De Graff sent the Saint Rose to go pick up the pirates under Jean Fantin, who were at Roatan Island. And what I don't understand is how de Graff even knew that those pirates were there in the first place. But if George Peterson did, in fact, stop off at Cabo Gracias Adios, pick up the Pacific Buccaneers, take them to Cow Island, and then sail on with Pierre Le Picard in tow to North America, he would certainly at some point have mentioned, oh, by the way, I left a bunch of French pirates at Roatan Island. You might want to go get those guys, especially if it was a relatively amicable separation. You know, they split the treasure 50-50 or whatever their proper shares were, but those pirates didn't want to go with Peterson, and Peterson didn't want them going with them. So we left them at a large, well-watered, well-populated with fish and fowl island, and said he'd tell somebody as soon as he ran into somebody trustworthy where they were. Now the Saint Rose is worth a really extra special note for two big reasons. First, the Articles of Agreement, the pirate code agreed to by the crew, survived. Now I was going to read the code in full to you, but really it's mostly articles that we've seen before. As the Last Council of the Brethren of the Coast, the Pirate Code agreed to here at Ilavache looks very much like the Pirate Codes of Henry Morgan and the other Brethren of the Coast. Shares are divvied up equally, except for those that go to the captain and the quartermaster and the surgeons. There are allotments made for injury payments, that sort of thing. Nothing we haven't seen before. There are a few interesting points, though. For example, quote, Item. Every man convicted of cowardice will lose his share. Or, quote, Any man making false oath and convicted of theft will lose his share and will be marooned on the first key. There's a lot of that, but what I really want to point to here, the most interesting part of this agreement, is the end. The articles finally conclude, quote, Done at Cow Island, Isle Lavache, anchored and founded, on the 18th of February, 1688. Signed, 
Jean Cherpin, and Mathurin de Moray, quartermaster of the crew. End quote. Mathurin de Moray, so recently returned from the Pacific Ocean, was quartermaster. This was his crew. Odd that it was yet another Saint Rose, but as far as I can tell, just coincidence. So they picked up Jean Fantin and his crew at Roatan Island and returned all of them to Ilavache. When they returned, the governor was still there. And he... Well, he was a little shocked at exactly how many pirates were aboard, but still pleased with their strength in numbers. Their numbers, if they could capture a few more ships, boded quite well for Saint-Domingue in the war to come. But Governor de Cusset should not have been so confident. Even though he didn't know it at the time, he even mentions the reason he should not have been so confident. In his journal, Governor Pierre-Paul Tarin de Cusset noted the presence of seven or eight Englishmen and the crew that were brought back from Roatan Island. And that serves as the first, the very first, reputable official mention of the pirate we have been getting to. Governor de Cusset named two Englishmen, Robert Culliford and another English pirate named William Kidd. Of course, William Kidd was actually Scottish, but the French governor didn't make that distinction. Captain Kidd, as he will go on to be known, is one of the most famous pirates of all time. Robert C. Ritchie, in his book Captain Kidd in the War Against the Pirates, places Kidd in a kind of pirate triumvirate, including Henry Morgan and Blackbeard. And in fact, it's a distinction that may or may not be earned in the case of William Kidd, as we're going to discuss in great detail. I would argue that the other pirates there on board the Saint Rose with Kidd, Robert Culliford in particular, were perhaps better pirates. Historian Richard Zacks writes in the introduction to his book, The Pirate Hunter, The True Story of Captain Kidd, quote, As I followed Kidd, another character kept elbowing his way upon the stage, Kidd's long-forgotten nemesis, Robert Culliford. It is uncanny how the lives of these two men intertwined and how they became locked in a kind of unscripted duel across the oceans of the world. End quote. Culliford is going to concern us a great deal in the weeks to come. Now, I'd love to give both Culliford and Kidd the kind of introduction I gave Henry Every. I'd like to give Thomas, too, that same introduction, but less is known about those three. Now, legend holds that Captain Kidd was born in Greenock, Scotland, circa 1645, to a Presbyterian minister, but there's no record of any of that, not in any church records anywhere in Scotland, but Kidd was Scottish. Testimonies and testimonials from his crewmates and his jailers all make mention of his Scottish heritage. Now, he immigrated to America by at least 1687, but that's all we know about William Kidd before this mention on board the Saint Rose in 1688. Now, William Kidd is not yet famous. In fact, it's a surprise that the governor made mention of him at all, but I'm glad he did. However, for the time being, this last council of the Brethren of the Coast 
had to be concluded. Mostly, the council was the governor and Laurent de Graff and all of these French privateers divvying out letters of mark and preparing for the war, the war that everyone knew was on the horizon somewhere. They were preparing for the next era of buccaneering. They were all going to become rich men. However, thanks in large part to William Kidd himself, those plans weren't going to go as they thought. The Saint-Rose was not going to be in control of the Saint-Domingue privateers for much longer, and this was not going to be a great new era of privateering. This was going to be the dawn of the golden age of piracy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews wherever it is you listen to the show. And everybody who has suggested this show to your friends or family. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight